Welcome to Sea Time, everybody, the off-road show that brings you all the results, news, and online shenanigans that make being online a good time. We'd like to say thank you to Fly Racing for their support of Sea Time. Please go check them out at flyracing.com. Welcome to Seat Time, everybody. Brian Pierce here, your host. And as you can see, we have brought back my father, Mr. Uh, Mr. Stephen Pierce, or uh, Papa Pierce, as a lot of the guys uh, that we used to ride with like to call him. Um, I don't know if it's because you have so much wisdom or just because you yell at us like uh, like good fathers should. Yeah, probably just because I'm your papa. <laughs> I, think, I think regardless it works out quite well. Um, it'll be fun to have you back well, on the you. show. Um, specifically because we're going to have Alan Stillwell a little bit later, a lot of Q&A. So I want to see, um, not not that I think you're old-minded and that you don't do well with... Uh, what did I screw up? Oh, this time it was Steven, everybody. This time it was Steven. Nice. That's what happens. That's what happens. Sometimes we're uh, not perfect. Um I think it'll be interesting to hear how, if there's a lot of differences, how things might have changed with what you remember yeah. from the way things were and the way things might have evolved. So I think that'll be interesting. Um, early this, we're going to have Cody Baker on just in a, a little bit. We're going to chat with him. Uh, cool dude, 14 years old uh, in the J-Day series, 14 years old. Blows my mind that he's in the 258 class doing as well as he is. Um, so Seat Time, the online show for the off-road enthusiasts. If you've tuned in live, you're probably looking forward to having Alan on, but don't worry. Um, we're fun. We're, we're energetic people that will make it just as entertaining until he gets here. Um, but definitely, we really appreciate you being here. Seat Time is definitely the beer-drinking, bin-tracing show for anyone out there involved in any kind of two-wheeled motorsports. You or may, root beer. Yeah, or root beer. That's fine. Yeah, we have to tell you, a pint full of awesome can be a pint full of water. It's all about having a good time, not getting inebriated. I think that's a good way to look at it. Um, so uh, Seat Time is brought to you by the fine folks over at Fly Racing. Uh, you can check them out at flyracing.com. Lots of cool gear in the off-road scene and moto as well. But I say cool gear because their vintage gear is, is actually quite cool. And it's great in the summer. It's in Texas. It worked extremely well in Nevada. And uh, so those really good stuff there. Obviously, still well performance, a uh, big sponsor of Seat Time. And we're, we're going to hear... A lot about them a little bit later, so I think my job's pretty much done there. Uh, KR4 Performance Arrive and Ride Program. If anybody out there has wanted to do a GNCC race or a National Enduro, but just don't have the funds to do all the travel that comes with it, um, this is a great program for you to be able to either A, rent a bike um, to make it at these so you can just fly in and fly out, or B, maybe send your bike to them for the whole series if that's what you're looking to do and keep the travel a little bit more minimum. And, of course, the guys over at Fast Company, uh, makers of the Flex Bars and things like the Torque Spock, uh, Spoke Wrench. I think, uh, have you used that yet, the Torque Spoke Wrench? Um, remember, I'm an old guy. Right. You use I have the, a the calibrated technique. wrist. You have calibrated wrist. That's like the German, uh, the German measurement for Gutentite. Yeah, good and tight. Good and tight. When okay. it's good and tight, you're done. <laughs> so, yeah, definitely. Obviously, you can tell you should go. We should all go pick up a torque yeah. spoke uh, spoke wrench. Those things. Are <laughs> but let's listen to maintenance first, because if that thing is frozen, <laughs> all the torque wrench in the world isn't going to help. That's true. So don't screw up your bike, because you know. You might have guys like us trying to work on it. It could get really crazy. So uh, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. If you're not tuning in to us live and you're archived, uh, you can find us on YouTube if you're wanting to do it that way, uh, which is video um, on the site, which is seattime.co. You can find everything archived there. Um, if you're looking for audio only, Stitcher and iTunes, you can just search for Seat Time, two words, and it'll come up. Bam, subscribe, and that way you can go back through all of our archived stuff. I promise you, if anybody is looking for about 20 to 25 minutes of awkward yet still funny 
go find the first ten episodes of Sea Time ever with me and Bloody on the couch. Oh, you! I, re- I remember eleven. Those. Oh yeah, you were on eleven. I was on eleven. Yeah, if you want to see early, early Papa the, Pierce, the national coming up in uh, Arkansas. Oh god, three the mud plus mud. years ago. Jeez Louise, we're crazy people. All right, guys. So yeah, we're getting ready for another national enduro this weekend. Yeah, it'll be good, Colorado. All right, so. We have our first guest, Mr. Cody Baker. How is your evening going, kind sir? Uh, pretty good. How about you? Well, you can tell that we've mumbled and fumbled our way through this very beginning here. Uh, how do you think we did? Was it energetic enough? Did we? What do you think? Were we missing anything? I don't know. I think it was pretty good. For, for Coming from a 14-year-old with braces, right? Yeah. And believe me, I've got nothing against you, one, being 14, or B, having braces, because... As my dad knows, I was in the exact same boat. Um, the one difference, though, I have to say, at 14, Father, I know the letter of a writer that I was, and I think it matches C, if I was lucky at 14. Would you agree with that? I think at 14, you were still... I hadn't heard Dad get still, over I was, yet. I was still in the woman's class? No. <laughs> um, and, and I think that wasn't was that the year you won the award for the most enduros finished in the back of a pickup truck? Oh no, that was like twelve or thirteen. Oh okay, fourteen. Okay. You know, it was so like, yeah, at four, by fourteen you you almost had your husky by then. Oh um, well, so which the the point that I want to make with that, Cody, <laughs> definitely is that at fourteen I was not a two fifty A rider like you are. Yeah, so two fifty A right now, you're doing extremely well. I want to know. Just tell me about. Your series so far, or your season so far in the J Day series? Um, well, like the first, like I worked the first race, and then the second one I DNF'd, and then after that I like started to get some better finishes, and then I really started like training hard once I got out of school for the summer, so. After that, I started getting like pretty good finishes, and then this past weekend up in Maine, I got a set. Uh, no, sorry, I got a third on Saturday, and then I got a second on Sunday. Nice, and uh, and also this past weekend, you decided to go look for some blueberries. What was that? That was a picture of you floating around, going over the handlebars in a berm, right? Oh no, that one wasn't me. No, no, that was just from this past weekend. Yeah, I cartwheel. I like cartwheeled into the extreme section. That wasn't me into the fence. Oh, okay. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah, I know. It's never fun to do that. Um, so yeah. the the two the the what was it? They call it a double header. I think that you guys just had with J Day this past weekend. How is that for you guys? Is it a lot of racing? Do you feel like you're getting a, a weekend full of racing, or do you feel like it's maybe just too jam packed in there? I don't know. Obviously, I've never had a chance to to make it up to one of these events. Yeah, I don't know. I think they're pretty cool. Those are my favorite ones. I just it's fun to hang out with like all my buddies and then we just get to ride all weekend and race and have fun. So it's pretty cool. Very cool. Well that I think that's a big part of it. We always talk about doing this stuff with our families and our friends. Mm-hmm. And so that that's that's the cool thing to do. On a typical J Day weekend when you're not racing the full weekend, what is the setup? Are you guys kinda heading out there on Saturday and hanging out and then racing Sunday or do you race Saturdays? What what is the typical setup for a J Day? It's like um the, the like schedule usually wise. like usually if they're close to my house, like within like an hour and a half to like two hours, we'll just like go there on like Sunday morning we'll get there for like seven and then walk the track and stuff and then hang out with my buddies and get ready for the first moto. Nice. All right. Well um bef- 
did you do any racing before J-Day? And this is going to be a question that comes down to format once we get to an answer. Um, yeah, I raced... I started racing motocross till I was probably, like, I think I was, like, 10. And then I raced Netra for, like, two years. Mm -hmm. And then I did, like, moto in between there. And then in 2012, I started racing the J-Days. All right. Um, So having done some... Go ahead. Sorry. What's that? 2011, sorry. Okay. Um, Yeah, so about three or four years. Um from the, the the aspect that I'm not 100% sure my dad knows the format with the J-Day, so they actually stick to the 30-minute motos mm-hmm. um, like motocross does. Mm-hmm. Um, like the, it was when I raced motocross. Right. Uh, well, the motocross is still the same, just supercross is like the difference with the 20-minute motos. But um, the the tracks they have up there, they always seem to have so much moisture. Like if when you people yeah. watch the videos, rocks. it's just like, oh, my gosh, I want to go race a J-Day so bad. Um, it, it, I think it's just because the, one, John Day does a fantastic job with the tracks, but two, um, it's the, the moisture in the ground that just always looks like that brownie dirt. So having kind of always been in the Northeast, do you prefer the J Day format over what you have done and say some of the Netras and stuff like that? Yeah, for sure. The J Days is definitely like I liked motocross and stuff, but out in natural and like even the motocross and stuff. And I've raced some GNCCs too, and like the J days just take it away. There's so much fun. Okay. Um, and then I guess, do you think that that's more because of the fact that off road for 30 minutes, literally 110 percent, um, is a little bit more fun? I and I use fun very liberally. Um, more fun than motocross because of the fact that it's a little bit more rough? I mean, what what do you think makes it so much more fun than maybe racing a longer race, like a longer off-road, or making, maybe racing a 30-minute moto, like actually on a motocross track? Um. Well, like, the J-Days compared to, like, a natural race, they're 30 minutes long, so you're just hanging it out for the 30 minutes, and you're wide open, just you kind of just go into the fullest as fast as you can go. And then, like, the motocross, you don't get that long of a moto, so you got to try to get a good start and just make it happen quick. But like the J days you kinda get you got a little bit of time, but it's not like when you come off you're not like half dead. Yeah. So mm. it's like one big long twenty four mile an hour test section. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. That could be fun. Yeah. With no transfers. Well for them twenty four miles an hour is, is is probably slow. You watch some of the videos, those guys are booking it. Man. Um, so have you done any Enduros? That's a that's I uh, like the fact that you've brought that up though. I mean, have you had a chance to kind of reach out and do a lot of other off road racing? Nah, really. The only things I've done other but like besides J days are I've done some GNCCs and I've raced some Netra races too. Okay, and uh, wh- which uh, classes were you in the G- GNCCs? Did you ever make it into the three hour program or were you doing the two hour program? Well, no, I was still pretty young when I did it. I did it when I was, like, 11. I did, like, I think I did the super mini class, and then I did it when I was 12, too. And I raced the same thing. I did the super mini 12 to 13. And then last year I went and raced. I did schoolboy, which was on a 125. Nice. Yeah, it would have been a different... uh a different childhood, I think, for us at the races if I'd have been in some kind of A-rider at the age of 14. Um, yeah, very much so. (laughs) 
I can tell you stories about you upside down in a tree. Oh, there's I can tell you stories of you wadded up in corners. Oh, it's just all kinds of stories at yeah. that age. He, he's not lying though. There was definitely a year, and I don't. Know, I think it might have been when I was like twelve or thirteen, where I I could have gotten an award for finishing more races in the back of a pickup truck than actually finishing I by crossing the finish line. At least you got recognized. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty pathetic. I never had to worry about him. We had to start on the same row, <laughs> and he was on, he had started out with like a Honda 100, and then yep. the, the Honda 80, the CR80s, when you started getting fast. And I never had to worry about you because somebody would drag you home in the back of their pickup truck. The nicest people ever would drag yeah, this dead yeah. body home. And Yeah, but yeah, never I, a dead I, bike. I like that, too. Maintenance. So, uh, <laughs> I, we've really enjoyed having a lot of the JDA guys on because I'm not going to lie, they have some pretty wicked accents. So, yeah, but not Taco just Kai. of their cool accents. Which of those, which of the JDA pros do you look up to the most and why? Um, I got to definitely say the number one guy is Johnny Girard. He's just one of my wicked good buddies. The kid takes me riding all the time. He helps me out a lot, and then Jake Abbott and Nick Batten, those are the other two guys I look up to a lot. They just do a lot for me and always take me riding and stuff, and they're cool dudes. Nice. Now, I know, Cody, that we haven't met in person, and you've met, you know, you've been around Jason Connell a lot in person, I would imagine, but from the vantage point that you have, who do you think has the better mustache at this point? Uh, I think Connell, to tell you the <sighs> truth. This is ridiculous. This is rigged. This is rigged, I tell you. Yeah, it's genetics. But yours, yours is pretty good, but I think Jason's got it by just a little bit. He's got it by a hair? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh! <laughs> yes, I'm still on it. Don't you worry, guys. I'm here all night. <laughs> we hope not, anyway. <laughs> all right, so... Try raising this. Yeah, I know. It was, yeah, there's no raising it. There's just watching it unfold. Um, so... The A200 clashed last year in 2013. You got second place overall. That's great. Going into the A250 this year, you're obviously starting to pick it back up or pick it up. You're learning. You're kind of figuring out the speed. The class is a yep. little bit different than it was uh, in the 200 class. What are your goals now? That you're, I, I would imagine you guys race until October, so you're probably halfway to three-quarters of the way through the season. So what are your goals by the end of it? And then what may be your goals for 2015? Uh for the rest of this year, I just want to get some wins and try to get, like, I want to get, I think, like, maybe, like, third for the championship, and my goal is to make pro by the end of the year. So we'll see if it happens. Right. Okay, now, in the J-Day, you say you want to make pro by next year. Do you have to be elevated to that class, or can you elevate yourself if you think you're ready? Nah, I don't know. Some people do that, but I don't know. I'd like to just make it myself from like getting promoted. Like you, you'd you prefer to get bumped opposed to yeah. be like, all right, let's do it, guys. Let's see what happens. <laughs> yeah, be recognized for your talent. Yeah, absolutely. No, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. As a 14 year old racer in the 250A class, mm. what do you think is the one thing that would screw you up at the like while you're getting ready? Do you have a process, and if something happened, what would that be to just totally throw you off your game? Um, I don't know, to have my bike, like, not run or, like, forget my gear or something, like, stupid. <laughs> See, at 18 or 16, it would have been somebody saying, it's the trophy girl coming over before the race. But at 14, that's, yeah, that's it's still not as distracting. 
Yeah. At 64, yeah. it's leaving your key home. <laughs> that happens. That yeah. happens, too. We go that... to the Formula One race, yep. and I leave my key home to my 990. Yeah. It's the biggest paperweight you could have oh, yeah. wasted gas on driving down the Austin. 500-pound paperweight. Well, I want to know... I want you, let me rephrase that, I want you to do some national enduros. I want to see what you can do up against those boys, because yeah. obviously you've got the quick speed. You've got the sprint right. speed, that 30 right. minutes there. Um, you know, Some of the national enduro tests are going to be 15, 20 minutes. Some of them are going to be in the 20 minutes, and some of them will even be up to, if, if not past, 30 minutes. Um, so you've got that sprint speed. I think it would be good to see um, not just you at 14 there, but a lot, a lot of other J-Day racers. Um, hitting up some national enduros. So I don't know for a fact if you guys have any more that are coming up towards you, but would that be something that you would be interested in? Yeah, I mean, I would definitely be down to do it. I just have to, if I could get, like, my mom and dad and maybe Brooks to bring me, I would definitely be down to try one. Oh, speaking of Brooks, if you were to say how Brooks was able to turn the entire J-Day series, well, maybe seven-eighths of the entire J-Day series, onto orange bikes. How would you say that? Um, like, do you mean, like, how he gets, like, the KTMs there? Well, no, not physically how he were to drive them there, but what was the deciding factor of how he pretty much got the entire series racing KTMs? Um, I don't know. They're just good bikes. They run good, and you really don't really have too many problems with them, if any. I think that's a pretty good sales pitch coming from a 14-year-old. Yeah, he understands. <laughs> They're ready to race, bro. Ready I've, I've race. been trying to break his son in properly. You know, there's blue, and then there's red, and then there's yellow, and then there's KTM. But yeah. no such thing as orange. It, it's KTM. You know, so we'll see if your son picks up on that. I don't know. Little man Liam, he's a good guy. Yeah. He's a good guy. Well, cool. Well, Cody, good luck. Keep up the good work. Obviously, you know, you said you had a little bit of issues there at the beginning of the season, kind of working into the uh, the 250A class. But, you know, coming in there and being able to come away with second overall after a two-day doubleheader, I think that's pretty impressive. Yeah. It shows that you're picking up the speed and learning the class and net learning how to compete with these guys. Um, so definitely keep it up so we can have you on again in the future. I mean, we'll have you on regardless because you're a cool kid. And hopefully – as you turn into more of a man, your Bostonian accent will come to fruition, and then you can just sound as wicked, wicked awesome. But he as, doesn't uh, have a car. You can't drive a car yeah, when you're for 14. Sure. A car? Yeah, you can't, you can't drive a car at 14. You can't pack your car in the garage. You know, no. nah. When you're 14, you gotta wait a few years. But then he'll get. Then he'll know how to say it. His car. The car. Pack the car. All right, Cody. Well, thank you very much for coming hey, on. Um, Go ahead. Like yeah. What up? Uh, I'd like to thank my mom, dad, and Brooks for always keeping me going. And then I'd like to thank Bazooka Joe and Dave Bradley for working on my bikes. And then also a huge thanks to uh, Loud Fuel, Cabral, and Bubs Tosh for they helped me out a lot. And then J-Day Off-Road, Poacher 27, 100% Goggles, 139 Designs, Hellion Designs, Valley Motorsports, Moto Photo 29, Savage MX, Crow Hill MX, G2, handguards, warp nine wheels, and then I can't thank uh, Jake Abbott and Nick Batten enough for always taking me riding, and then also a huge thanks to Johnny Girard for always bringing me riding and helping me out, and then also my all my other friends and family. Nice. Outstanding. Well, yeah, that's awesome you got so many people helping you out. What you need to do, do you have like a contact with 100% goggles? 
Yeah. Okay. Shoot him my number, them, male or female, that person who is your contact at 100% Goggles, yeah. and uh, tell him that I would like to reach out. I have uh, some questions about some of the Racecraft Goggles that I have. All right. All right. We don't need to we, – we just need to talk. We need, need to know how he finishes at the end of the season, too. Yeah, so definitely. Well, so he's got my number. He's t- gonna, he's, t- whatever t- you do. I'm not on Snapchat. Don't treat my, my, my phone number, like my text messages, as Snapchat. I don't want any awkward photos. You know, no, actually, just send it all to me. I can take it. I'm a grown man. All right. <laughs> thanks again, dude. You have a good night, and we'll chat with you soon. Do well. All right, thanks a lot. <laughs> Later, man. Right, bye. Sweet. So, Cody Baker, up in the Northeast, cool dude. Uh, uh, Moto Photo 29, who he was talking about, she really helped us out when we got a lot of the other younger JD guys mm-hmm. on. He was one of the ones we just didn't have time for. And I really, I, it's really cool how, how fast these guys are doing, and I like the series. Um, they're very supportive of seat time up there, so I want to make sure they get some time to chat about what's yep, going on indeed. and uh, have some fun up there. So we don't have a pintful of awesome award uh, currently this today. What we are doing though is Fly Racing is going to give away some swag to the best question that comes from the chat room this evening for Alan Stillwell. I've gotten a couple. Um, so uh, obviously the chat room is doing really good right now. I'm not going to lie. So if you're watching live, tlk.io/seattime is where you can go to see that, and you can get involved. You just have to sign in with Twitter, or you can be a guest, which is easy too. Um, with that, if for some reason I do miss your question because there's just a lot of chatter going through there, feel free to post it again. Um, I do have a couple written down that I was going to go off of, and I have seen some of the earlier ones come through. So this will be cool. We'll have to see if uh, Alan Stillwell is there. He is. He's even watching. Yeah, look at that. So, so professional. Just checking in, huh, Alan? What's up, man? Dude, did you get dinner? I did not. Well, For some reason, I uh, I got my hours mixed up. So, yeah, you're getting me with a light lunch and a, an adult beverage tonight. And, and a painkiller. You never know what's going to happen, right? <laughs> I don't. As long as, uh, I guess as long as the camera stays from the bottom of the neck up, we're probably, yeah. uh, we're probably in pretty good shape, right? Yeah, for sure. Well, Alan, I know that you probably haven't had a chance before that this is my father on the couch next to me. He's been uh, on a show before, and um, I thought it would be really interesting for him to be able to come on and and see of the evolution that we've all kind of gone through in the past 10, 15 years that he's been more or less out of the sport um, in in the racing sense of it, um, that it would be cool to see kind of, you know, from you how things have evolved and stuff. So I guess virtually this is my father. How you doing, dude? <laughs> yeah, glad to meet you. The, the next generation wins, you know? Yeah, right, for sure. Every time. All right, so ask Alan anything. This is your time to get on. If this is if this is archived for you, well, obviously this is a reason that you should turn into Seat Time Live. This is your chance to get in here and answer into the chat room, ask the best question that you have, and it gives you a chance to win some fly racing gear. Now, Alan, as we go through these questions, too, if one of them really piques your interest or go, wow, that is a great question, kind of try to mentally uh, maybe remember that so we can come back to it and we can pick our winner from it. How's that sound? That sounds great. Cool. Well, uh, and you are a fantastic sponsor of Seat Time, which obviously, since we've got you here, we might as well just say thank you very much for your support of Seat Time, stillwellperformance.com. Everybody, this is Turner Dude, right? Or Tuner Dude? Yeah. Tuner Dude. It's all good. It's the it's guy, all good. man. You've done a really good job with growing this thing, Brian, and it was uh, it was extremely fun and just a little weird hanging out on Sixth Street in Austin after X Games with you. You, you definitely know the, your way around there. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> Considering the fact that I remember about this much of that experience, 
Yeah, I'm glad that you remember more than me. I'm just glad I got yeah. home. I'm just glad I got I vaguely home. remember a couple of flybys with you, and that's about it. <laughs> uh, it was the bar where people were doing the beer bongs, but from uh, Jolene Van Hoyt, that really was like an eye-opening experience for me, to say the least. Yeah. So I was going to start this off. Um, and again, this is the Ask Alan Anything, so I figure we can be – I don't know if this is blunt or not, but we can be just – you know, just as as the question comes to mind. So I noticed a lot of people selling suspension services lately. So the market seems to be becoming a bit saturated. Um, and then also, uh, when I mention Stillwell Performance to people, they seem they seem to talk about their local guy having them dialed. Um, so I want to know how do you talk to these potential customers, and what kind of things do you tell them or talk to them about that makes them want you to be their suspension guy opposed to the local guy. Yeah, it's it is getting saturated, Brian. You're right. You know, there's um, there's a lot of guys out there that you know may take a class or read a book and and grab some tools and start taking stuff apart. And you know, we all started that way, so more power to them. But it's a uh, it's a combination of things. You know, we work with a lot of the top writers in, in different disciplines. Um, we just uh, we just decided to work with Shane Watts and his crew again next year for GNCC and National Enduro. So when you have that depth of, of talent to tap into, you know, you really can take some shortcuts on, on helping yourself get to a good setting for, you know, the average guy, the weekend warrior or, or the, the local racer. So I think that's important because you in this business, you have to test. You know, I tested for almost a year before I hung my shingle up. And you, you make, for, for every good choice you make and every good direction you, you take with, you know, your settings – you probably make a dozen bad ones and stupid decisions and, you know, and looking back on some of my notes from like 2005 and 2006, I'm like, what were you thinking, man? But, you know, that's how you learn, right? Yeah. So as and, and as all the new bikes have evolved, and I think we'll get a lot of questions tonight about, you know, some of the new suspension components, uh, especially on the Betas and KTMs, and, and uh, you know, you've got the new triple air fork on the, on the Suzuki. You have to keep up with that, right? You have to get out there and test it. You have to uh, uh, make it make it bad before you can make it good. Yeah. And you mentioned something I think that's really critical that a lot of people kind of shortcut, and that's the notebook. You know, you've got to keep a record of what you've done. Did it work? Did it not work? Was it an improvement? Was it, you know, exactly? I've got notebooks for every dirt bike I've had for the last 20 years and everything in there. When I change springs, when I change uh, settings, so that I know if it got better or worse or whatever, and that's just as an amateur racer. So at the pro level or at the the double A level, that's critical for you guys. You've got to keep a record of what worked and what didn't, and that can trickle down to the rest of us. That same the technology yeah. is just write it in a notebook. <laughs> yeah, it, it's true. It, you know, it's really true, and the requirements have changed, and. You know, the suspension and the bikes, I mean, the bikes have evolved. If you look at just like, for example, if you look at the KTM line, they made some huge steps forward in the components on the bike suspension-wise in like about 07 to 09. And a lot of the problems that you had to fight around, like sticky forks and stuff that squeaks when it goes up and down, you know, you could you could now go in there and really get a better tune on it. But, yeah, I, I go back to my notes and my notebooks and – and uh, Max and Kevin, you know, they're always laughing at me because I write things down in my notebook, and I and I just keep writing it and and have this these big old Manila file folders because that type of stuff, if I commit it to a computer, I'll probably forget half of it. So 
I was, we were finishing Max's bike yesterday and I'm out there with my one inch thick notebook and we're going back through just with him, you know, what worked, what didn't work. And he's become quite a good test rider. So it's, it's a lot of fun, but it's a, this whole business is a moving target. You know, I'm sure we we probably get some guys out there that are asking, Hey, what do you need to get into the business? And it's a moving target. You know, um, you could, Brian, you could have three guys on your XC 300 that weigh the same. They're exactly the same speed. And uh, you put your setup in front of them, they wouldn't like it. You know, they, they want their own thing. So it's a lot of listening. It's a lot of deciphering. The language that we have in this business is ridiculous. You can des- describe your bike kicking in about seven different ways. So I think about 30 or 40% of my job as a psychologist and trying to make sense. <laughs> you know, when you got a guy on the phone, like, for example, we had uh, to be a good test rider because guys like Chris Kiefer and Max Gersten now apparently can – express what's happening to them while riding a bike extremely well to a, to a point where you then, the, the tuner, can make those adjustments, where some people might just get off the bike and be like, I, it won't turn. What do you mean it won't yep. turn? Like it dives? Is it, is it jumping over the berm? Like what do you mean it won't turn? And yeah. they, they have it no hops. expression in that. Yeah, it hops, it dives, it skips, it's, it's uh, jumpy, it's bouncy. Bouncy is about my favorite one because, well, in a way, it's supposed to be bouncy. <laughs> it's just, is it a good bounce or a bad bounce? So, yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, to your point, Pops, that, uh, you know, some riders know more than others about tuning. It's, it's really interesting because almost to a rider, the faster the guy goes, the less he knows about actually what's happening with his suspension. And... I've worked with a lot of really good guys, and it's really interesting. And I'll, I'll use Watsy for an example. That guy could, you know, I could twist the clickers any way that I wanted to, and, and he would adapt to it within a, a half mile. And he would come back, and I go, what do you think? And, you know, what's wh- what do you want to do next? And it was the very first day I was working with him, I was asking him those open-end questions, and he just kind of, yeah, I don't know. You know, it, it feels good to me. <laughs> Run with your brung mentality. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, it's interesting for sure. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I don't know. It, 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 I've tried to get better at that, and I've realized that, you know, with, with our discussions, that I, there, I've got a lot to learn in that department. And I think that that's something that I think a lot of people should try to, to have as better discourse uh, discourse with the people that they're having tune their suspension and work with. Um one of the the quick ones I got earlier was from uh, Zach Huberty at Innovation Off Road, and this was a uh, kind of what's the difference between the ultra gummy Dunlop tire and the stock Dunlop tires? And then I wanted to take it one step further and say, is the ultra sticky Dunlop being made off of a current mold, or is it actually an entire new mold and pattern that they're using for this gummy tire? No, it's it's that Dunlop tire has an interesting story because you know as as enduro cross evolved, the need for you know a, a good traction tire in wet rocks and everything like that to get around the track was becoming quite a necessity. So that particular tire is in a D756 mold, which was always one of my favorite Dunlop tires. And mm-hmm. essentially, Dunlop just takes that mold and pours D803 trials tire compound into it, okay, and you know out pops the tire. Um, the thing about those tires is, as we all know, they're, they're on Optanium, and, and we actually have to account for those tires as they get used and they're supposed to be disposed of. So, you know, they're, they're not actually supposed to go out into the public because 
It's a racing tire with a limited life. It, it has virtually no sidewall to it, and it'll break down pretty quickly. Like Cody actually will run a tire, will run one of those two races, will actually flip it, and he likes it better the second race because it's you know it's crushed in a little bit, and and uh, as that as that knob wears around it a little bit, it actually grips better. Huh. So it's it's been interesting with those, and you know we. We're a dealer for the Golden Tire, which is about the closest replica of that factory Dunlop that you can get. And they're pretty good darn tires. It's a 140, so it's a super wide tire. And, you know, if you're running tire balls or, uh, or moose, you have to actually order the, the correct uh, setup to put inside it. But it works good. The problem with those tires, though, for the average guy is, you know, if you're going to go out and spend 150 bucks on a tire, you really want it to last a long time. So you have to buy those tires with the understanding that this is a race tire. It's like, you know, a Ferrari tire. You're not going to get 60,000 miles out of it. You're probably going to get 6,000 miles out of it, but it'll be the best 6,000 miles of your life. Yeah. Go roost your buddies and climb a telephone pole with it. Yeah, not any kind of race, just an endurocross race. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, <laughs> I like it. <laughs> or your, or your cases. Yeah. Uh, what? So was it the equilibrium tire that Kyle Rubin was telling you about that Kenda has, or was he riding one, a, a different uh, sticky rubber one? I don't know what the name of it is, Brian. I know I talked to him last week, and he said he was doing some testing with them, and that they had a uh, you know a like a sticky tire compound that they were going to come out with, and then. Um, Western Power Sports. I know uh, Dave Hansen's my rep for Western Power Sports, and we just set up his Husky last week, and we got to talking about it because I'm having some trouble getting the Golden Tires. The distribution is is not really what it should be right now, and he said that uh, that they're actually going to to come out with a sticky tire through their Sedona in-house brand. So I think it's becoming more and more widely accepted, and it's you know it's a game changer, man. You you can see the difference. Like we had some of our amateur kids on on the sticky tires this year and it's tough to go around an enduro cross course when you're an amateur but you can actually see them the bike pulling them through the you know through the rocks where before you'd light up just an mx whatever or, or a bridgestone or anything you just light the tire up and sit there and spin huh yeah it's interesting and i love the fact that uh that, uh, so we're talking about Zach Hubert. He asked this question about the Dunlops. He runs Innovation Off-Road, and he had a really neat um, write-up last week about the new prototype Kinda Equilibrium tires. And if Kyle Redman's out testing, I would imagine he's probably testing something of this sort. Um, and it literally is a crossbreed between their Trials tire molding and a, one of their other, I don't know the exact uh, mold, but the other one of their other off-road tires, um, but using kind of the Trial compound, like you were saying, I think you said the 803 kind of, you know, super sticky rubber stuff. Um, and it's really interesting looking. And Ryder Lafferty was doing a lot of testing on it. I'm looking forward to seeing them at the TKO. Um, I think I'm going to get a pair of the ultra stickies of the Kindas to run there at TKO. So it'll be cool to get a chance to really test that and see if what you're saying is true. Because if I don't win, I don't know, Alan, if I can believe what you're saying, right? I don't know. You know, if you don't win, Brian, I've already told you we're going to ban you from the pit. So there's no pressure or anything. <laughs> okay, okay. I got this, then. I got this. All right, so let's get to some more questions. Now, this is a little bit of a long one, but since we're kind of in the mix, I just want to get a little bit of the longer ones out. This is one we got right away when we talked about the show last week that you were going to come on. So I really wanted to get this. This is from Eric Miller. Now, let me see if I can get this for you. And if, I, if, if for some reason I lose you, Alan, you just tell me, and I'll try to find some highlights here, okay? So... 2012 KTM 250XSX, two-stroke. He's about 175 pounds, 6'5". He says he's a desert expert running a 3.2-gallon tank. 
He's got a Scotts dampener and a bib in the front tire. He sets his sag to spec. He says his forks are downright abusive for cross-country or desert riding. He says, I've resprung with heavier springs, and the bike runs and feels great on sand whoops and G-outs, but then it's abusive for braking bumps or square-edge chops. Uh, High-speed hits, zap his wrist, and grind his palms to hamburgers. His words. <laughs> Dialing back the compression adjuster doesn't help. Rebound feels good, and the fork doesn't feel like it's packing. I lowered the outer chamber oil, but that made G-outs harsh. A local turner tuner took some compression dampening during a revalve, but it only made the fork softer on G-outs and whoops, not the high-speed chop. I have come to the point of running my Desert Valve Husaberg 570 open chamber forks on the 250. The Berg forks are plush even with heavy springs. How do I get high-speed plushness in the craptastic closed-chambered fork? I guess I really probably could have just asked the end of that, but I thought that there was – I, I like the fact that he put so much effort into this because you could tell he's looking for a real answer. Yeah. Oh, no, and that's – you know, quite frankly, that's a typical that's a typical phone conversation mm-hmm. that, that I have, gosh, I don't know, sometimes, you know, 15 times a day. So you've got a guy here uh, – the only thing I didn't hear was his weight. Oh, 175. Okay. What was his skill level? Uh, desert expert. Okay. So the the things you have to look at is, first of all, it's an SX, right? So Correct. it's a dragster motor in a 210-pound chassis. So getting the power to the ground in that bike is, is very, very critical, and we actually set those up a little bit different than, say, an XC, just because of the, you know, the raw power, the, the brutal nature of the delivery and how light the bike is. The other thing in that in that message that uh, piqued my interest was he's six foot five, so Correct. he's a know, skinny I, guy for yeah. six five at one seventy five. Yeah, get off the yeah. heroin, dude. Jeez. Yeah, but if you think about bending in the waist at six foot five, that dude is got a lot of head, shoulders, and chest up over the front of the bike. And if he's a desert racer, that's no doubt where he spends a lot of his time is on the gas, on the pegs. You know, kind of like Kurt used to look, man. Right. He, had, yep. he had the perfect off-road desert physique. He was straight-legged, leaned over the bike, and, um, you know, you need a little bit of spring up there to hold him up. Um, so if he sprung the bike correctly, then his problem is is really in the valving because yeah. a six foot five guy at 175 pounds um, – let me back up for a second and, and talk about springs and, and spring rates because – there's a lot of charts out there, and we've all gotten used to in the past just going, oh, I need this for my bike. I'm going to plug it into the computer, and out pops the spring. And, and we no longer have done that here at, at my shop for you know about 10 years Good. because all of those factors that he just described play into that. He's 175 pounds, but he's a big, big tall dude, right? Yeah. And now he's, now he's bonsai and whoops at 60 i'm sure he's got that thing geared up so he's bonsai and whoops 60 70 miles an hour if he's running national hair and hound or anything out in nevada so you have to take that into account and that changes the whole scheme of things so when he said he sprung it for his weight i would question is that the really the right spring based on the other conditions and and that's a tough question to answer because the average guy out there has access to an online spring calculator and really that's the decision you're making and in my experience, you know, I've, I've seen those things, and, and they're about 30% off. So, um, but let's assume for a moment he's got the right springs on the bike. Then you have to think about where he lives in the country, 
the, the you know amount of speed he's carrying, the bike he's on, the setup for a, for a 254 stroke would be a lot different or 350 than, than what I'm going to describe. So that front end of that bike has to stay up. It has to stay light. He has to be able to skim the whoops and not have the front end dive because as we all know, when you're going 60 across the whoops, if you if you you know if you dive into a whoop, you're probably going to get into a swapper. So for a desert guy, we would err on a little bit stiffer of a spring for him, and then how we would actually you know look to set up valving would be to give him some plushness because a typical desert racer races across the valley, up the next mountain range, across the top of the mountain range, and down again. You know that's that's what hare and hound is, right? Is it's just 80 mile an hour straightaways, and then they throw you into the rocks. So right. it, it is a tough thing to tune for. Um, I would be asking that guy, where does he have the most problems during his race? So if, if his race is 100 miles long, let's say it's 60% whoops and 40% rocks, where does he really want to go faster? Because the, the thing that nobody wants to admit as a tuner in off-road is it's a compromise, Right. It's absolutely a compromise because, like, right in my backyard, a mile down the road, you can hit fourth gear three-foot whoops for five miles, turn, go up a hill, and be in square-edge ledge rocks for, you know, miles and miles. So um, that's a 180-degree that's a different setup. So when he's looking at fixing his bike, he's really got to figure out, where am I in the most trouble? You know, where, where do I... Uh, um, where do I actually want to improve myself the most? Is it in the rocks or is it in the high-speed stuff? So it sounds to me like he's undersprung, and it sounds to me like they've gone the wrong way with the valving. They're looking to – these local tuners looking to make it softer, but in doing so, he's letting the fork blow through the stroke. And I, I definitely want to talk about this, and I'm sure we'll get some questions on it, but all of the new from about 08 up chassis, whether it's a Japanese bike, an, an Austrian bike, an Italian bike, the chassis are so fine-tuned that if the front fork is off, then the whole bike feels off. And, and the tuning should be focused more on the front of the bike rather than the rear because since about 09, the back follows the front. So what I'm hearing him say is it, it's just soft, you know, and, and I don't know what valving's in it, but if they drop the oil height, if they soften the valving, then what they're doing is they're relying on the spring to hold the bike up. But when he hits a bump, there's not enough uh, uh, dampening there to keep the fork from blowing through. So if you look at your average fork, right, you've got a third, a third, and a third. This is how we look at it. The first third is rocks. It needs to be soft. It needs to be plush. And it needs to move fast. When it transitions to the mid-stroke, it needs to be smooth without a spike, but it needs to increase the dampening. And then that last third keeps you from going over the bars, basically. So <laughs> he's bonsai across it, right? We've all hit those perfect whoops and you're skimming the top and all of a sudden you see a cupped one that's got six inches of nothing but a ledge there that's that's where you better have your bike set up right because you're going to hit that at speed and it's either going to suck it up and keep you going straight or it's going to keep you going sideways and over the bars <laughs> Wee! well i could just yeah. say that you sounded extremely intelligent and you know what you're talking about so well that was thank you that was that's I, I got your I got your $20 for that. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. So, Eric Miller, I would also have to say that if it's if your wrists uh, are getting some grenading going on, you could check out uh, Fast Company because their flex bars are perfect for that. They've definitely helped my hands a lot with that. And yeah. those are just the little things. It's not like flex bars like a lot of people think, oh, my bar's flex. It's not. It literally is like that 2% that, that takes 
blisters and all the hand vibration and all the wrist pain just kind of out of the equation. Um, and I think that that would be a really yeah, good option. I, I, would, I, would, I would just say in general, Brian, that he needs to work on getting the chassis to feel flat. So as he goes over the whoops and the bumps, he can feel the suspension moving underneath him, but there shouldn't be a lot of bar movement back and forth or a lot of kicking in the seat. And that's a generalization that works for the East Coast guys, too, or the sand, sand guys in Florida, you know, or the guys up in Seattle that are just climbing over slimy roots all day. As you On these modern bikes, the main focus is get the forks working right and get the chassis to stay flat in, in as many obstacles as you can. <laughs> Dig it. Okay. Now, I've seen a lot of questions about the 4CS fork, so I don't know how much more we can ignore the fact that people have questions about them. Um, I, yep. I've seen things like from Ryan Kudla in the chat rooms like, do does Stillwell think that the 4CS forks are really a step forward? Uh, there's that one. Then, uh, then we've got another one in here. You know, but people are talking about they haven't had a chance to really mess with the 4CS fork yet, and I would assume that that means either a they haven't bought a bike yet that has one on there, or maybe they, maybe they like doing a little bit of their own tuning and they just haven't had a bike yet where they can get into there. So, opinions, thoughts, 4CS. Just if we had a five second just brain dump, what would it be on those on those bad boys? There, there is no way to talk about 4CS in five seconds. What I about mean, five we- minutes? <laughs> well, I'll do the condensed version. version. So, <laughs> Cliff I mean, the, the first thing is, is you know, talking to the guys at KTM, the fork is here to stay. Um, there has been five generations of this fork already. There was the 13 Berg, the 14 KTMs, the Dungey bike, then the Husky, and the new Dungey bike. And... and we're making subtle changes like the 15 inches are longer and the oil heights are different and so you can tell when that's happening that ktm is searching for answers and you know i i love the orange brand it's a big big part of our business but the fact is is that the the fork in the stock form has issues and it does have issues for guys and i break the country down to you know you've got your northwest and your northeast guys right they deal with a lot of moisture in the ground there's ruts it's slimy they're looking for traction, okay? The desert guys down by us, the Destry Abbots of the world, Utah, Southern California stuff, they're looking to go fast and keep the fork up in the whoops. Uh, kind of same with, you know, the, the Florida guys are looking for a compromise, and we've done some work for guys in Florida just recently, and and uh, they have a lot of stuff to deal with with whoops, and then they turn right, and they're in the palmetto roots, which can be a foot deep. So the, the bottom line is that... Um, the, the fork does have issues. It's it's complaints that we've gotten from customers all across the country. But the, it's it's interesting, Brian, because usually when a customer calls, you know they've got a really specific type of application and and they want the bike to work right, and they're having a problem. But four strokes, two strokes, big four CS bikes, the Dungey bikes, you know the the lighter bikes. Now they're on the fifteen SXs as well. The f- complaints are the same as the first part of the stroke of the fork is very, very harsh. But if you hit something hard and push through that first part instantaneously, the fork blows all the way through to the, to the bottoming chamber, and then it's, it, it can do a number of different things depending upon how much you're hitting it. I know that you know, we, we believe here that 
we don't sell anything that we haven't tested first. So I got one of the first 14 250XCs. It, it came in a great – we uncrated that sucker, and we started riding it every night. And, of course, about that time, Kiefer and Chris Dennison at Dirt Rider are calling going, hey – can we use your 250XC at the at the Denver Enduro Cross? So I had, had literally like eight or nine days to get a setting, and I was I was working it. Max was laughing at me because I'd work all day, then I'd suit up and I'd go revalve it, ride it, come back, revalve it again, go ride it again, and come in, you know, with the headlight on. And I did this over and over and over again, and I learned a lot about the fork. And and it's I, I will say this to the guys out there that are on the fence, and I, I don't want to badmouth anything, but in stock form, it's got some issues. However, this, there, it's a very smooth stroke to the fork. It's extremely plush once you get it set up right. So, you know, we get a we. It's the number one call we get. Brian is guys calling. They've either bought a, a bike with four CS or they're considering it, and they really want to know what the real deal is. And, and the real deal here. We, is that we're revalving three to five sets of those a week. And, yeah, and, and, and you know, it's, it's here to stay. We're, we're developing. We actually have the very, very last test going on our prototype pistons this weekend. Once we pass the test, and you thought, we'll off this But here, here's the bottom line. The fork is choked up on oil. It doesn't flow enough fluid. And when that happens, you can't effectively valve it to do pretty much anything well. So it's it's a lot like I, I use the analogy of a of a hose. So you're out there and you you know you, in your case, Brian, you're out there washing the family truckster, right? Your minivan or or uh, <laughs> hey, hey, with the maybe with the TV seats and everything. Maybe yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> you, know, you got the hose on halfway, right? You're washing the soap off. Well, if you can turn that hose on high and adjust it just right. Well, then you have the ability to blow the dirt off and, and get in the cracks and crevices. So if you put that in a, in the form of motorcycle suspension, you have to flow enough fluid in order to control it properly. And one of the big problems with that fork is it's just choked up. Okay. And there is a lot of stuff going on inside of a 4CS fork. I mean, they call it four chamber because it, it literally is four different chambers that you know contain oil and valving and air and spring and preload. So there's a lot to do in there, and it it will be you know for the weekend guy it's tough because now you're bleeding out the bottom chamber, then you're flipping it over and you have to bleed out the top chamber, and if you don't get it right then you know your oil height is off and that controls your bottoming and so the spring preload is off on the fork and mm-hmm. it's a it's it's a handful but i will say i know eric kudla uh, has sent me a couple of facebooks and stuff i will say when you get it done and you do it right it's a really good fork okay it, it, in fact i would say that once properly set up it it will be the best fork that ktm has and i think that's why they brought it on the on the sx is is because Let's face it, the magazines love KTMs, but they don't like the suspension, so they had to do something. So the changes they made for the SX, the Dungey model last year, have followed through in some of the other models, and it's been a good change. You know, they're controlling the oil flow and the bottom-out control and things like that better. So I would say to guys out there, um, don't give up on it. It's a really good fork. You know, I think that there are tuners out there. We consider ourselves one of those that have it figured out, and we understand the needs of, like I said, the Northeast rider and the Southern California rider and the and the, the Florida sand rider and the Midwest guy carving through the woods. So we've got great settings for it. But I'll tell you, it took a lot of time. 
I've been doing this a long time, and that was by far the most challenging setup that that I had to work on. I bet. Here's a, here's and I'm a happy question. I got it all done before I put my head in the dirt and broke my back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would have sucked trying to cut like in a wheelchair or like yeah. you know with a cane. I gotta go work on my four CS fork. It all hurts. I can't yeah. walk. I might as well ride. Huh? Yeah, exactly. that's what I was doing. <laughs> um, so I want to know when it comes to that four CS fork, like you're saying, you get a lot of calls and people are needing to make adjustments, and you know that these adjustments know what these adjustments are that need to be made. Are these things that you can do where they're just paying a service fee or are there aftermarket parts that they not should put in but need to put in for these forks to not feel as harsh or to fall under the complaints I would say that a lot of people have had about the forks? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I tell guys that call all the time, I'm not here to spend your money, but there's some real value to certain things that you can do to your suspension that, you know, will work for your particular situation. So, um, the, the way that we break it all down is we'll take a stock bike and we'll go out and we'll change oil heights, spring preloads, springs, run the clickers in, run the clickers out and get the stock bike to work absolutely as best as it can under as many different conditions as we can get. And then from there, you know, we put our heads together and figure out, all right, well, for the moto guy, he's going to need this change. For the off-road guy, he's going to need this change. And you know, up till this year, it was all it was all off-road. So now you've got you've got a lot of guys buying 15 KTM's. It's a great motorbike, and so now you know you've got to tune that for for uh, the motor track as well. So I'll go back to what I said before. You know, the fork is star for oil in the base valve area. So we we uh, got with our machinist. We started working on pistons. And it's been amazing the improvements that we've been able to make in the fork by, you know, getting some more oil flow. Fluing. It's almost like we have something to work with now, and it's, it's opened up a whole different level of tuning on it. So um, is there some products out there for the fork? Not a lot right now, you know, but I, I foresee that there will be. It's here to stay. If you look at KTM, when they make a change to something, they pretty much stick with it, whether it's you know the best thing in the world or, or, or not quite up to par. Um, I mean, you look at their open cartridge fork; it's been around now for gosh, I don't know, going on twenty years, I guess. Hmm. Well, look in '96 when they went to the single shock that was linkless. You know, yeah. they were the only company doing yeah. that. And they had all kinds of problems with it. <laughs> yeah, um, but they stuck oh, with yeah. it. It was their decision to do, and they stuck yeah. with it. And eventually, people made it work. Yeah. You know, they, they got a lot of criticism, but I'm a big fan of Orange Bikes, and they got a lot of criticism because they were going to bring out a 300 or a 150 or a 200, and I'll tell you, they're smart guys. You know, they look for the niche in the market, and they they grew that, and now they're they're kind of mm. taken over, and the, and the moto market is, from a guy that's 30 and up, you know, is they're buying KTMs, they're easy to ride, they're easy to start, and... Um, they're a lot of fun, you know. I've ridden ridden all of them, and I'm 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 a big fan. I mean, quite frankly, Brian, you can't buy a bad dirt bike these days. You really can't. Yeah, no. Uh, I mean, everything off the floor, out of the box, is is pretty dang awesome. Yeah, you know the new YZ250 is phenomenal. We just set up a 2015 YZ450 for a National Hare and Hound Pro, and you know the chassis are great on them. They turn good. They're powerful. Uh, they're really refined. They don't break a lot like when the four strokes first came out. So, yeah, I'm just a fan of the modern dirt bike. It's it's so much fun because they're so adjustable now. And I go back to that whole chassis thing is, you know, it's not just suspension. You're not tuning just suspension. And for, you know, the guys in the in the garage listening, 
you should be looking at the whole package, you know, the axle placement and your offsets of your clamps, like Huskies are different than KTMs, your preloads, all of those things, your sag numbers, they all interact from the front to the back of the bike. And it's a, it's, it's a lot of fun and it's a lot of challenge right now to, to get them to work right. And uh, you really have to be able to watch your rider on the trail or on the track and dissect what the bike is doing, what the rider is telling you, which quite frankly about 30% of the time is exactly opposite of you know what I'm seeing. So you have to extrapolate all that and come up with a solution. And, you know, it's uh, don't be afraid to fail. Get out there and, you know, spin some clickers and, and, and change some stuff around and see how it feels. But there's no substitute for experience in, in this business for sure. Right on. Um, it's funny you mentioned the, the modern uh, motorcycle, and we had a question, a question in the chat room um, from Phil Meckham. Meckham? Meckham. Does Stillwell set up vintage suspension? I do. <laughs> I do. You know, I was – I was uh, a rider. I hate to say it, but back in the day, right? You know, the guys. <laughs> yeah. From, yeah, we we built a new shop, and and so we decorated the office with some of my old vintage pictures. Back when I didn't have, you know, my my built-in fanny pack, um, and uh, <laughs> and you know, it's interesting because if you think about it. Right around 1985 is when suspension became adjustable, and I remember going to Paul Thede's class at Race Tech a long, long time ago, and he he started talking about you know how you can tune on things, and, he, and Paul's a really smart guy, and uh, that's when you started to be able to affect some changes. Before that, you take the forks apart, you'd braze the, the damping holes shut, and you'd drill other ones in another spot, in another size. Look at your dad nodding his head. Yep. He's been there, right? He's been there. <laughs> and, you, and you put it back together, and you go, man, I hope this works. And so you're poking you, your finger at things. you put 30-weight motor oil in it to get it to have yeah, some dampening. Yeah, your question, you know, we do. We like it. We just we did an 80, 81 IT465. I had one uh, of those. We we just finished a, an 85 CR250 that I didn't even want to let go out the door. It was a, it was a kid local here. He's been a good customer, Odin. And uh, I, I almost bought the bike from him because he was showing me pictures of it. And it's like, dude, I just want that thing. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there's to, to answer the gentleman's question, there's, there's problems with that too because when you start busting apart stuff that's 30 and 40 years old, you have to replace everything. You have to replace the little copper you know, washers that, that hold the remote reservoir to the shock body and you're going to need bushings and you're going to need seals and you're going to need pistons and, you know, all of that stuff that we take for granted now, right? You send your suspension in and you, you know, ninja it around and you get your springs right and everything and you send it back to the guy and he likes it. Well, the, the average um, vintage racer's job may be, you know, another 50% higher in cost to get it done. But, uh, yeah, we do it. We like it. It's a challenge for sure because stuff falls apart. You know, the rubber bottoming bumpers on the shocks, you <laughs> yeah. take it up and it crumbles like charcoal. My, my, my tech Kevin is here and he's just nodding his head going, yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy, you know. <laughs> so you send the parts list to the customer and you're like, all right, dude, here's what you're looking at. And he's like, oh, my goodness, you know, I didn't expect that. But that's what you get with vintage stuff. But, the you know, some of the stuff out there is you can make it work really good. Like, for example, that 85 Honda shock. It's not a lot different than what you'll find on your new KXs or your new Hondas. It may look a little bit different, but you know the the thing dampens the same way, and 
And Showa really had that stuff figured out back in the day. I remember motocross action going, the 87 Honda CR250 forks were the best thing they've ever ridden. And you know what? That design was better than, in my opinion, than the upside down fork because it flexed more and it made the ride plusher. And they put them on the XL, XRs. Yeah. The you know what? Ones. We just did an XR400 with a, with a CRF450 front end with triple clamps and the whole deal. And, and it was great to get it in here. You know, it's a little bit different job than what we normally do. And, and my tech just loved it. You know, he tore into that thing. And the guy, you know, he rides the rocks up in Flagstaff, Arizona. And he just, it's a great setup. An XR400 is an awesome bike. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty wicked. Okay. So, uh, Dustin Malicote in the chat room was asking, do you use a huck valve or some sort of anti bottoming valve in your suspension? Or I guess in your suspension um, work? You know, a huck valve is a, is a branded valve and, we don't necessarily use that exact product, but we arrive at the same uh, at the same solution based on what the customer needs. So, you know, it's it's not as easy as buying a product and dropping it in and going, "Great, it's better." It will be better, but you have to take so many different things into consideration. If the guy has problems with bottoming, you have to look a lot deeper. And I'll go back to the gentleman that was talking about his his desert setup. I'm sure he's bottoming that bike. So you need to look for solutions and you need to look deep. And um, we don't really believe in, in throwing products at, at a customer uh, with the hope of solving a problem. We're, we're pretty much want to dissect exactly what's going on for that guy. And, and I go back to, you know, Brian, I did your 300, right? Yep. It's probably the most popular bike out there right now is a KTM 300XC in, in the off-road world. And, you know, I can't tell you how many different setups we've arrived at and, you know, a guy may call up and go, man, I'm having a ton of problems with bottoming. Well, you know, maybe he played with his oil height and dropped it too much. Or maybe he's 40 pounds heavier than the springs. Or maybe he's riding B-class when he should be a pro and he's just slamming stuff too hard. <laughs> so it's it's a lot of just, you know, it's like a psychologist, dude. You just got to really talk to the customer and understand. And then you apply your knowledge and your skills. And if you have products that work for that customer, it'll, it will help them. Then you know we we talk about that. Um, there's a lot of things we've developed here that are off-road based. That when a you know a moto guy calls up, he goes, "Man, I'm I got a fully modified SX250 with a 300 head on it and jug, and you know I rip around the motocross track." Well, I may not recommend some of the things to him that I would for the next guy that calls. It's just a full-on single track head, right? So you know you have to match you have to match the solution to the need. Is what I say, and and I, you know, there's there's a lot of companies out there that make good products, but it's a it's a one size fits all. And I, again, I go back to '09 and up. It's a whole new world with these bikes. You know, it's not a one size fits all. Is this bike, your bike, for example, can be made to do so many different things. You know, you see them at the moto track. Well, the setup for that's different than the guy who's going to go over the hill from the motocross track and ride in the in the creek bottom with three foot boulders. Woo! I like that idea. I like the t- yeah. I, even though I would probably crash on the one foot boulder. Can you imagine that with are, the supercross suspension? Oh, that would hurt. Yeah. What's that? Are you riding TKO? I am. I'm signed up. I'm seven B on uh, the amateur day. All right. Uh, well, my goal on. is to make the is to make the the first cut, make it into the not 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 make it, but make it into the second race, and then after yeah. that, I just want to finish it. Uh, not That's that I need to finish it on time. I just want to finish yeah. it. That's just a gnarly race, you know. We've been doing a lot of a lot of tuning here because we've got three weeks in a row with three distinctly yeah. different races. 
Texans coming up. We've got the Colorado National Enduro, and then you go directly from there. You come home. You have one day to you know to change setups and, and clean the bikes, put them back in the trailer, and then you're off to Tennessee for Tennessee Knockout. And then a week later, you know, you're back in the stadium and you're banging into big lumber, you know, three foot logs and stuff. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a lot going on for you guys. And that's cool because that's one of the main reasons that this appealed to us and, and why we wanted to chat with you and be able to get questions is because you've been going through so many different setups for the for the same riders, same bikes. It's just that you've got to make all these weird different adjustments for all these different types of terrain. So and Two different riders with two different riding styles. Yeah, so there's a lot going on there. Um, let's go. I had a couple of questions for Mopar, and I didn't get a chance to get to any of these yet. What is the float on the WP twin chamber forks, and what does it alter? What is the float on the WP twin chamber forks, and what does it alter? Okay. Well, float is a word that describes how much, and I'll, I'll use I'll use real rudimentary terms because. You know, Please. you can find a yeah, you can find a lot of technical stuff that typically puts most guys to sleep. So here's the scoop: the float works with the mid valve. The mid valve is a secondary compression circuit within the fork that helps to modulate the fork specifically as it gets a little bit deeper into the stroke. So it has its own shim stack. It has its own piston. You know, on one side is is uh, the mid valve, and on one side is the rebound. So what he's asking about is, if you think about this hand is the face of the mid-valve piston, and these are the shims, right? And there's a spring behind them. So when you hit a bump, there's an opening that instantly, instantaneously happens before the shims start to bend. And that is called the float. And a lot of guys spend a ton of time adjusting that float to get the type of, of ride they want out of the, out of the bike, specifically... Uh, I'll use I use an off road. You know, you're going to TKO. It's the world of square edge rocks. So that's considered a, a high speed suspension movement. You may hit a rock, Brian, in a couple weeks at that place going five miles an hour, but to your spent suspension, it's a high speed movement. So that float pops open, allows oil to flow, and then the shims start to bend. So it's extremely tunable within within a suspension. And that's the description of it. So, what what was he asking beyond that? Uh, oh, I guess it's like oh, uh, so he was just asking what it what is the float? So that was actually what that was, and what does it alter? So I think that you kind of actually hit both of those yeah. points. Yeah, yeah, it's you know, it's it's something that I think motocross action actually invented it because they used to complain about mid-stroke harshness, right? If you were a motocross action fan, which I was, and I read every every issue cover to cover. That was their big complaint was that after they hit a bump, as the fork moved deeper into the stroke, it became harsh. So, you know, that's where that's where as suspension evolved, they came up with, you know, the, the mid valve. And there there's a, a million different ways to tune it. And it's it's really dependent upon all the things that we've, you know, talked about a couple of times tonight already is height, weight, speed, where in the country you are, what bike do you have, two-stroke, four-stroke, do you sit down, do you stand up, are you old, are you young? I could go on forever about it, but um, it's uh, if you want to tune on that, you know, it, it requires every time you make a change, you have to take the fork down to pretty much the last nut and bolt, and it's a pain in the butt. When I was learning about the, the business and really decided I wanted to be in this full-time, 
um, I grabbed everybody's bike that I could find and I started tearing them down and, you know, they all hated me by the end of a year <laughs> because, you know, like I said before, you make a lot of mistakes before you, you, you get to a point where you find something good and the mid valve affects a lot of things and the way you set it up can be, you know, limitless and, um, if you're a moto guy, it's it's you know you typically set it one way. If you're an off-road guy, like a GNCC guy, you set it one way. And if you want to crawl all over the the mountains in Idaho and Colorado, you might set it another way. Very cool. Um, that's interesting. Yeah, and I know that uh, I saw. Uh, I can't remember. There's a I think oh it was Craft Moto. They came up with a, an adjustable mid valve, I believe, for that float. And it's interesting. So. You know, from like you were saying, from motocross action, maybe even creating this valve. You know, from what they were talking about in the harshness. You know, it's it's even evolved to the point now where there's an adjustable, uh, an externally adjustable uh, mid valve. So yeah, yeah, and it's it's got its applications. I think that it's a pretty slim um, uh, application. You know, for what I understand about that product, but you know, the ability to to just have any change at all externally is good. I like the 4CS because you don't have to crawl under the bike anymore to make any changes. And you know, out here, in, out here in Arizona, that's typically when you end up with a cactus in your head <laughs> or, or in your butt. <laughs> I got one in my in my arm riding the razor this weekend. It's not fun. The jumping choya they hurt like hell. Yeah, I saw that. Uh, I saw that picture. It was uh, pretty interesting. I wanted to – I was surprised that we did not get uh, very many questions about this, and so I'm going to bring it up. And we're probably – we're getting to that point where we probably should start starting to wrap it up because we don't want to keep everybody too long from all their families and, and from dinner. But <laughs> and air, their adult beverage. And their adult beverage. But, <laughs> but air in forks and in shocks. Um, so 4CS is not air. Um, the triple chamber, uh, the SFS, I believe it is. And if I'm, I could be wrong, that's fine. It's on the new Cowie, the new triple chamber air fork. Um, and the air forks on the Cowies have been around, I think, since like 2013. We're seeing KTM. We're testing for a while. Talking to Kirk Caselli, he'd even been testing an air shock on his KTM behind the scenes. Um, right. And we're seeing Andrew Short race with him almost all year on the BTO team. They're there. Um, KTM's testing them. We know that you know they've got to have some kind of air fork in R and D somewhere. Uh, what are your thoughts there? Is this just? Yeah, I mean that's the question. What are your thoughts on air in the as it kind of applies into motorcycles and suspension? Yeah, I mean if you think back, um, I'll I'll uh, have your dad laughing in a minute here. If you really think back to the seventies, you know we used to have the huge air canisters on top the of the yeah. YZs. And before that, we used to drill a hole in the top of the fork cap and put a Schrader valve in there and pump that sucker up because we wanted to be like the factory guys. So, you know, it goes way back. I mean, air's been around. It, it's still around. If you think about it, 4CS is is, a, is a, a closed chamber and an open chamber fork. And um, the new air forks completely replaced the spring in there. So what do I think about them? I think they have a lot of, a lot of potential. When when Honda came out with you know Honda and Cowie came out in thirteen with the air fork right we uh, we have a customer from Singapore Benny the Jet 
he'll call me up every year and he'll tell me what bike to go buy him. So we go down and we buy him a bike. We bring it to the shop. We completely tune it for him. He comes over from Singapore, rides here for a month, hangs out at the shop, and then we box his bike up and we ship it back. And he's he's figured out that he can actually ship it in three cardboard boxes and he doesn't have to pay you know the the import tax on it. <laughs> so he said, "Hey, I want a 13 CR." 450 and I'm like great no problem we want to test one anyway so we went down to Western Honda and grabbed one brought it home and I remember the very first day that we went out um, Max Gersten went out with me testing because he's he's the fast guy and I'm the old guy that sometimes can go pretty good but not usually so we took that thing out it was 101 degrees when we left the shop because we can ride right out of the shop to go test and so we set the fork at a certain level and I was concerned about it, you know, pumping up because, man, it, it's hot out here. And, you know, you think about how hot stuff gets during a moto or, or a hare and hound or a GNCC. So we took a, a, a gauge with us, a good gauge that we had. And so we rode that thing off-road, not hard, but we rode it for about 40 minutes. And it had pumped up two pounds. Well, that's the equivalent of one spring rate. And that was kind of a warning flag for me. It's like, man, you know, the guys that are running hair scrambles – they want the thing to be softer at the end and not not harsher, and that's yeah. what more air would would be. So I think that they've worked on that, and I I haven't uh, I haven't obviously I can't ride right now, so I haven't thrown a leg over the new Suzuki with that fork. But I believe that they're getting it to the point where they can control that that air. You know that that Showa fork has a negative chamber, and it looks to me like a, just a bleed off for excess air pressure, so they can keep it consistent. So with that said, right, with that said, and assuming that they've got some of the bugs worked out, I think it's a great idea. It's That fork is so plush, and I, I noticed it most when you're in a third-gear sweeper with about two inches of acceleration chop. That fork stayed on the ground. It was plush. It, it didn't give a lot of feedback through the handlebars and so forth. And, you know, Max rode it, rode it off-road in some super gnarly rocks and stuff, and he really liked it. But we kept checking the pressure, and as long as we could keep the pressure in the right range, then uh, then it worked fantastic. So real smooth, less weight. I think it has a future. You can tell by, you know, how they're changing the design, right? First it was the SFFF show fork with the big spring in one side and no spring in the other. And now they've taken that design one step further and they pulled the, the you know it out of there. I think it's got a lot of potential. I think right now it has a little bit more potential for the the shorter rides and the shorter races than say you know I'll go back to three hour GNCC where these guys they can't check their air pressure in the middle of the race right. so they have to deal with whatever they they end up with but um, it's got a lot of positives it also has a lot of negatives you know I was last year at the Moto Track and here comes a guy with a blown couple yep. blown fork seals yep. and his fenders riding on the tire yep. Yep. so. You know, you have to. If you're if you're a moto guy, it's a different situation than an off road guy. Like off road guys leave the truck, they got a fanny pack, and you know, like I'll use my buddies in Colorado, they're banging out 120, 130 mile days, two and three tanks. They don't want to deal with it if there's a problem with it. They just want it to last all day and be consistent. Yep. Where the moto guy is going to go out, an amateur is going to go run a 15 to 20 minute moto as hard as he can, he or she can go. It, it makes a lot more sense. So. You know, I'll, I'll reserve my judgment until I, you know, can can really look hard at the Suzuki and and what the advances are. But it looks like they've solved a lot of the initial problems, and I hope they have because 
once they get that sucker dialed, man, it's going to be so smooth and so supple that, it, I mean, air is compressible, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's like a spring, but you can control it a lot more. With a spring, you're turning your preload on a dial, and with, an, with, you know, with air, you can make it infinite to what you can adjust it to. And it's progressive. It's 100% progressive. It's a linear yeah, curve. Yeah, sure. Hmm. Yep, it is. We tried. You know, we pumped them full of nitrogen. We did a bunch of things to try and control the heat and stuff. So, you know, Arizona is a little extreme. You know, you know, guys are riding in 110 degrees out here, and and that's extreme on the bike. So, I don't want to. I don't want to prejudge anything, but I, I think that uh, I think that what we saw on the first generation was a pretty good moto setup, but it had a little bit of drawback for the off road world. All right, you didn't say anything about the air shock. So that either means that you've tested one and you can't say anything, or <laughs> you choose not to. Or you cried a lot. All right, Ryan, so you? you know it's coming, right? I'm good buddies with the Fox guys. We're we're the largest Fox motorcycle suspension dealer in the in the country right now, and so um, we sell a lot of Fox shocks, right? Cody lives 15 minutes from the Fox guys, so we went over there. And it's ironic that, you know, I had a 1977 Suzuki RM, and I had air shocks on yeah. the back. Huskies had air shocks. You, know, you could go out and buy that technology, and when you look at that air shock in 77 broken down, it's not a lot different than what you're seeing now. The, the difference now is that if you watch Ryan Dungey at the first uh, Supercross of the year, man, that, that air shock looked fantastic. It looked super plush. It looked like it had great bottoming resistance, and it helped the bike stay flat. Well, you know, a couple of races later, he's on the line, and, and, and somebody popped a hole in it, and it went, it went flat. So, you know, there, there's pluses and minuses to everything, but I think you'll see it. Brian, I think you're going to see two things coming forth in, in the next 10 years. You're going to see a lot of weight reduction. The components will go up, and you'll see a lot more air. And I, I really believe that in, you know, in 10 years or less, just like EFI, you're going to plug your computer into your sure. suspension, and you're going to tune it that way. Yeah, and it's already that's already happening on the mountain bike side of things. Yeah, um, and so I think that we're seeing a lot, even though it doesn't happen nearly as fast as I would have expected when I kind of got back into dirt biking in 2006 from the mountain bike world. We're mm -hmm. definitely on a trickle factor from the, a lot of the technology that's going on there. It used to be um, so the other much way. so. so yeah, so much so. Two years ago, um, we stopped at Fox at the Fox Factory on the way to Sacramento Enduro Cross, and they gave us a tour. And you know, I'm I'm like the total tourist, right? I got my iPhone and I'm popping can you know popping pictures off one after the other. Well, Neeser, our guy, turns left, goes into this room, and he turns around, and he goes, "You have to put your camera in your pocket." And he flipped the lights on it, and there was a bike on a stand, with tons of wires running everywhere from it, and a, and a bank of computer monitors, and they were working on electronically tuned suspension and lo and behold two years two years later when i went to cody's to tune before the first race this year we go trucking down to the fox shop you know the fox factory we needed to change the seal and uh there it is in production right you can flip a switch and you can go soft medium hard i, I think is that that's what it is but you, you can do it on the fly and it's pretty cool there's some street bikes now that adventure bikes that are yep. toying with that yeah, the Ducatis have you know the Olins on the Ducatis have adjustable adjustability to it, but it's really from a panel that you you pre choose your presets and stuff. But I think that you'll be able to see a lot of uh, a lot of advances. I mean, we're you know we're working on something here that that will be pretty cool um, for the off road rider to be bonsai down the trail and make some adjustments. So 
I can't really say too much more about it, but you know, there's some good things coming. Yeah, it's uh, the Fox uh, on the mountain bike side of things. They had their climb, trail, descend. They call it the CTD mode. Um, and it was actually quite, I, from what I understand, I don't know if they just had bad stock settings on a lot of the bikes, but, uh, I never got a chance. As I've said, like 2006 for me was kind of when I transitioned back, uh, to dirt bikes. And so I don't get a chance to play around with a lot of the technology in the mountain bike world as much, but uh, apparently it was kind of a big flop. Um, Ooh. and so I wonder if, you know, you're saying like soft, medium, hard, if it's kind of the same mentality of. You know what you would want for climbing versus descending versus kind of just going. Um, how people would respond to that? Now, was it a flop because people just freaked out? Like I don't, I like getting themselves in the wrong setting at the wrong time, and so the bike rode like shit. Or was it that they just had really bad settings for these set, these preset settings, um, and so that gave everybody a bad taste in their mouth about the CTD. Um, and so it could be interesting to see how that kind of plays over into the motorcycle world. But I mean, you know, they're right across the right across the hall from each other. I would imagine where all this R and D went down for mountain biking for then what it's going to happen as it goes into the motorcycle side of things. So yeah, yeah, the, the big limiting factor is cost. You know, you start throwing electronics at it. You look at the, when they put EFI on the bikes, the prices started going up. So now you know, do you want electronic suspension on your bike? And I, I'm, I'm sure. It, I'm sure there's some things going on behind the scenes, but it's like a lot of things. Do you, do you want to spend nine thousand dollars on your bike, or now do you want to spend eleven? Yeah, and, and uh, what I, you don't see a lot of aftermarket suspension purchases in the motorcycle world either. In the mountain bike world, you do. You know, somebody's going to be like, "I am riding RockShox. This bike sucks. I want to go to you know to the Boss suspension because Boss has really made a big push in their distributing in the states again. I want to you know, or there's so you know, there's you could do Cane Creek." There's so many different options, and it it seems expensive at the time. But if you were to go to that in the motorcycle route, you were like, man, you know, I want to want these forks. That would be a pretty penny, right? I mean, we're talking two, three grand yeah. easy. Like, yeah, we're you know we're an Olin's dealer as well as a Fox dealer. So if you think about a, a, a full set of Olin's forks, those really sexy gold forks, you yeah. know, we sell. We sell a few, more than a few of them a, a year, but it's a specialized deal, right? Because when a guy pops for thirty three hundred bucks with springs and valving and everything, you know you are expecting world class performance, and, and quite frankly, they're really good at that. And that's why I think we sell so many Fox shocks. Is you know, guys, the off road guys have uh, a lot of them have now been through different tuners or revalves, and, and they understand what good suspension is. And now they want to take it to the next level. That's a lot of reason why, you know, we do a lot of Kashima and we do a lot of DLC business. Huh. And, and those are, those are spring it, valve it, go ride it, come back for an oil service and go, man, this is awesome. Now I want to take it to the next level. Well, Kashima, DLC it, you know, put a piston in it, that type of thing. So I think that just the evolution of guys that have gone from completely stock stuff, twisting clickers, and now they've had a few revalves or they've you know gone here, gone here. Now they're like, man, I want to make this bike as good as possible. So you know you're looking at really about thirty five hundred to seven thousand dollars to make that happen, depending upon the, the brand you choose for your aftermarket stuff. But it is good. A lot of the reason it's good is it you know they they machine the tolerances on this stuff so perfectly. It's like. Uh, you know, I shoot, so I, I'm into shotguns, right? And, and they'll 
they'll have different shotgun components and the, and the one that fits together perfectly it becomes the match grade you know that you spend extra money for so if you think about that in suspension they uh the cartridge tolerances are perfect. The cartridge rod and everything fits perfectly. The inner and outer tube are mated perfectly. The bushings have the right clearance and stuff. And, uh, man, when you ride something like that, it's amazing. And you can see it like Bubba. Watch Bubba ride Supercross. He's crazy and knocks himself out once in a while. But when the dude's on and you the, – the coverage this year has been great because they have those high-quality super slow-mo cameras. Yeah. If you really watch that stuff, you can see Villapoto's fork flexing when he hits a whoop, and it's flexing three quarters of an inch if if it's a, if it's a millimeter. And when you really tune in on that stuff and see how well they have those bikes tuned for that, yet how stiff they are, it's all about having those components sliding and, and not creating any friction or stiction, as they call it. You know, and the same the same with the shock. You know, the shock takes most of the heat of the suspension, so things swell up. So the piston band now has to seal against a, 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 a wall, a shock wall that's now bigger, right? If it doesn't, it blows the oil past there, and all of a sudden you've got something leading through and it gets mushy. So there's a lot of stuff out there you can do to your stock suspension, you know. But I, I go back to the basics, man. If, if you're, you're looking to improve your bike, um, Go out there and twist the clickers and really read your manual and understand. We have a just a short four-page little tuning guide on our website. It's free. You can go up there, click on, you know, download the tuning guide, and and it's not anything super technical, but it's designed for the guy who bought a new bike and he really wants to understand suspension and get his bike to work better. So talks you through, you know, how to set your sag and go out and you know how to spin your clickers and find out where exactly is the best setup for you, and then. Once those guys do that and they really get on board with, wow, there's, there's a difference there, that's when you know, they can understand the value of going to a good tuner and, and finding a revalve and taking it to the next level. And then to your point earlier, you know, then the next level after that is, is big dollars. And it's funny, though, because you know, four or five grand to a mountain bike guy, no big deal. They'll do it to save grams. Yeah. A dirt a dirt bike guy, you know, we're all cheap bastards, right? <laughs> yeah, we're riding the most expensive thing, like, in the dirt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, well, it's, do you ever uh, have to explain to people that their bike came with a range of dampening and that the clickers will only take it so far? You know, for oh, example, yeah. an SX versus an EXC type suspension or the, the, the range of the dampening is so much different, the clickers may not even overlap the settings. Yeah, it's it's very true, and you know that's that's another one of the really top things is hey, I just spent nine grand on this thing and it sucks, no. and I spun the clickers this way and I've spun them that way. So what do I do? And yeah, you know the you, you really have to look at your needs and and how, where you're going to ride the bike because an SX is different than an XC, and you know a Beta RR factory edition is is different than the standard RR, and you know the same with with WRs versus YZFs mm-hmm. and so forth, and so everybody's got an off-road version and a and a moto version. But what you really have to to hone in on is your specifics. Is you know go to the basics. Is make sure your sags right. If you're trying to tune your engine and you don't have the right springs on the bike, you might as well just close the garage door and throw your arms up because it's not going to get that much better. You have to start with the basics, and it's a building block system where you start with your springs, and then you you know adjust your clickers and get it as good as as you can get it, and then you start adjusting things like you know uh, uh, triple clamp height with the forks and and sag and axle placement and you know a lot of little tuning things that 
what you take it a step at a time because exactly. it's, it's it's a black art and it's a it's uh you can make a lot of mistakes one step at a time that's key don't make five yeah. or six changes yeah. and then expect yeah. expect and it I to happen this, i tell guys too is everybody has a buddy that like knows suspension right so you're going to go out with this guy who who is the expert but it, it's your bike you're riding it so Take the time to learn about it. Read your manual. Understand what where the where the manufacturer wants it set. You know, set the clicker somewhere in the middle if you don't know. Go ride the bike. Then set the clickers completely stiff. Now I'm disclaiming this because the my attorney said I have to do this. Is said, you know, Alan doesn't say <laughs> set it stiff and go bonsai, but you know, stiffen the bike up, go ride it down your quarter mile section, and then on the way back, set everything soft. You'll understand in an afternoon really what your range, to your point, is, you know, what is your range of adjustment, and then you can hone in on it from there. But quite frankly, um, without turning this into a sales pitch, it's pretty disappointing that, you know, the level of the of the suspension on a bike that's nine ten thousand $10,000 these days, I, I, I just to keep expecting the manufacturers to step up and have something that, you know, the, the average sea rider may go, hey, man, this is good enough for me. Right. And I, I don't see it out there. I just don't see it out there. Well, man, Alan, I'm not going to lie. I learned a lot. And uh, if I get a 2015, which might be in 2015, not going to happen now, I have a feeling that we need to find a way to get a Fox Shock on the back and uh, my 4CS forks better. <laughs> first we I set the sag. Really yeah, first we'll set the sag, and then we'll yeah, take it off and send it, it to you. Right springs. <laughs> I have a feeling that in my in my, in my uh, email inbox there'll be a, a Brian Pierce message that says, "Hey, let's barter this thing out." Yeah, Just let's figure it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but no, no, it's it's a it's fun, it's challenging. Um, like I said before, you know, if you go out with it with a screwdriver and a wrench and and uh, you know a page of notes, go out and find. It doesn't have to be miles and miles of gnarly stuff, but go find the, the type of terrain that's most difficult for you and tune your bike for that, and you'll be surprised. You know, it's, 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 uh, We're in the business of selling revalves and improved suspension, but I also like it when customers will come to us and they're like, man, you know, we really appreciate your help. My, my kid's bike is so much better. I feel like he's safe, and all we did was spin the clickers like you, like you told us to. So it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. It's a... It's, uh, it's a difficult thing for sure, you know, and like I said, the new bikes are making it more and more difficult to get the right tune on it, but it's what we do for, for a living, and, you know, I, I think I think we're pretty good at it. All right, well, stillwellperformance.com, that is Alan Stillwell. It makes sense. It's Stillwell Performance, so he will performify, give it the, the Stillwell Performify, I don't know. I like to say he'll make your squishy suck less. <laughs> Jesus, Pierce. <laughs> <laughs> Piece of work, man. You know, I talked to Cody about 20 minutes before I went on there, and he goes, "The guy's just so unpredictable, man. You just don't know what he's." You have no idea. Yeah, dude. Did you? Did I don't know if you saw Twitter today? Did you see Mike Brown decided to like totally hand me one on Twitter? No. Oh, so. uh, okay, so Taylor Robert has all the ISDE guys staying at his house, yeah. right? And all the bikes are there. And, down the road. Right. And I, and I tried to get them to all come like over to your house, by the way, but that didn't work out. Um, and so, so Dustin, Valic- Dustin Valicote was like, oh, wouldn't that be awesome to have them all on the show? And so I said, and they're all tagged like in the in this tweet. So I go, oh, dude. We've tried to have them all on the show before, and I put Mike Brown's the, or Brownie's the only one who stood us up. 
You know, and I like, come on. I mean, Brownie and I have talked about this at races before that like he's like, I'll be on. Don't worry. Just call me. I'll call him. He never answers. So it, it's it's almost funny the way it happens. But, dude, he ate into me online. He goes, dude, you don't know what's going on. There's all kinds of stuff at my house right now. I just couldn't make it. And I'm like, whoa, what the hell yeah. happened? Like, oh, shit, dude. And even uh, Dustin, who originally kind of started by tagging me into it, goes, dude, he was just joking, man. <laughs> like, but yeah, so Mike Brown, 41-year-old badass. Hey, you just don't know when Brownie's going to reach through that computer screen and choke <laughs> you out. He's just he's an intense dude. I, I know him pretty good, and he's a great, great guy. But, you know, when he puts a helmet on and he gets that look behind there, it's like, if we're gated next to him, you know, I don't bump him or anything because I don't want him to, like, throw a punch at me when I'm trying to gate Cody. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it, I, would, I would agree with that. Like, he probably, like, either just got off an airplane and had to sit next to a baby or he just took his helmet off so he was still, like, in moto mode and he saw that tweet and was just like, blah, 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 yeah. attack with fingers. Well, so, I, I tell you what, I, you know, I don't want to take up the whole night, but I'll, I'll tell you something about Mike Brown is we uh, – you know, he got second. I think he got second. I can't remember. It was one of the LAX games, but we got third, and or we got second, and he got third. But anyway, the first thing that he did when they were getting ready to call the podium up is, you know, he, he's like, "Hey, hold my bike," and he is like running up and down the stands looking for his family, and he wanted those kids on the podium with him. And I just thought that was so cool that you know, here's this superstar guy, and he wanted his family to be a part of that. So. I'm a big Brownie fan. I've always been a big Brownie fan. You know, he's a tough competitor, man. And, you know, you have to get in and try and muscle him around. And he's going to come back at you if you do that. So, you know, you know you're going to war when you line up on the line with him. And he's a hell of a starter, too. So yes. we'd, re we'd really like to pull a whole shot on him this year. Yeah, that would be good. Well, I'm definitely I, – I plan to call him today. But work's been pretty crazy. We've been working on a tough site for a tough client right now. Um, but I want to call him and just be like, hey, buddy, I was just kidding. Sorry I riled your feathers up. We're still friends. You're not going to hit me, right? Cool. <laughs> At least he cared. He cared enough to yeah. be one on the – he tweeted me a hard one. Was, there you go, man. That's Brownie. He, you always know where he's at. Yeah, that's true. All right, so here's the way it works. Still, uh, Stillwellperformance.com. Go check them out. You can email them. You can call them. And just remember, you got to hear about them on seat time. And if you talk to them really nice like – May even throw you a seat time discount. We don't have anything official, but you never know. All you got to do is ask because all he can do is say no. Thanks, man. Yeah. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, no, I gave gotta... you an out. You can say no. <laughs> That's right. Hey, you can go to our website. There's a free consultation request up there. You can click on it. You can talk about your suspension with us. We'll go over what we've learned, what we know, and how we can help you. And then, like I said before, you can go up and click on it and download a free tuning guide that, you know, it'll get you started. It, it's not it's not all the magic, but um, it will definitely help you guys learn about it, get started. And, and that's what we're about, you know. Um, I'm sitting here nine months into a broken back, so I've become real cognizant of the fact that we're in a dangerous sport. So, it, you know, getting your suspension right helps you ride safer. It'll make you ride more relaxed, and uh, that's really what it's all about. Cool, man. Well, we really appreciate you, one, for your supportive seat time um, and everything that you've helped us with. You're an awesome dude to talk to at the races, and thank you for, you know, coming on the night and not just helping me understand a lot of this stuff better and my dad and Steven, but all of our viewers like that, I know that they're going to really appreciate it um, and mm -hmm. hopefully just come to you with questions. I think that's the, the best way to start. And we hope you're yeah, on the mend. 
We sure we sure appreciate all the supporters of Seat Time. You know, we're we're behind you and your program. It's it's definitely something that our sport needs, and uh, um, you know, you you uh, you do a good job, man. So it's all good. Glad you have pops on there. I loved every time I mentioned nineteen seventy something. He's nodding his head like, yeah. <laughs> Men were men, right? Dude, <laughs> I lived it, bro. And, and I'm, I'm paying for it because your knees were your suspension back then. There you go. Yeah, yeah. So hopefully, we, you know, we've answered some questions and helped some people. But if you, if you guys have questions, we're, you know, we're here to help. And, and uh, we do this every day. So, uh, you know, we think we can, we can help you make it better. Sweet, dude. Well, go get some dinner. Maybe another uh, painkiller. Some, uh, some more adult beverages. Whichever, however you plan to mix that, just do it, uh, you know. Responsibly, I guess is the. I'm still on, I'm still on island time, man. Those painkillers, those are those are pretty great. <laughs> yep. Sun go down. So thank you. you guys. Yeah, we sure love love to be here and thanks again. Later, dude. All right, we'll see ya. All right, so that was a lot of fun. That was a little bit longer than we expected, but dude, honestly, the information that we got oh. was so invaluable. So super super excited that that went down. It's a science. It is. It's not an art. It's a science. And it's a science that I am no mathematician. That's just the truth. Thank well, you. that's you. why you got me. That's why I build websites, so I don't have to do math. And even then, I still have to do math. Freaking JavaScript and all, this, oh, all the calculations that come along with that sometimes break my brain. So if we had to pick a question, uh, I think I know which one I want to pick. But was there anything off the top of your head that kind of sticks out of maybe a, a question that really would be worthy of some free flyation they, they were all so good because he, the way he expanded on them. And see, that's why and the one that value. out in my head, it was one of our earlier ones. Honestly, it was the one. It was the one from Eric Miller. It was the elongated, very the desert race. Yeah, the 175 but pounds. The thing six is, foot is like, I think not only did his answer to that question give us a lot of information, but he was able to continue to come back to that yes. exact question, and it was like, well, back to that. And so that's why I feel that that was such a valuable question in this q and A. I I mean, do you have an agreement, oh, a disagreement? Totally or? Okay. They made reference to it two or three times through other questions. Yeah. All right. So I'm going to say it, that Eric Miller is going to be our winner for some fly ration swag. But I am also going to talk to Dale, and I'll go through for some other questions, because I think we had a lot of good questions. I was very, very appreciative of the fact that everybody was able to get in the chat room, find us on Twitter, hit us up on Facebook, and be able to drop questions to us that we could then ask Alan Stilwell. We know that Alan's talkative. The four-chamber discussions was invaluable. Yeah. I mean, we were probably actually patent that. Copyright it and put it on the Internet of its own little piece. I bet people will be coming back to his comments on seat time for months months to listen to Better what he said years here people years i don't know by that point there'll be air forks on ktm they'll have five useless. chamber forks yeah right yeah. who knows who knows so one of the little things that i wanted to talk about one of the randoms that we just don't get a lot of time with other guests and the, the way the format of the show works if you will uh the works race this past weekend seemed to be awesome um a couple of our viewers were uh, sending us messages like did you see or hear about the racing that happened between gary sutherland and ricky russell for those who don't know ricky russell is a gncc xc2 racer he is in the title chase right now, a little bit points behind um, with the, the, the Baylor brother, uh, Grant Baylor, but he's definitely still in contention for the XE2 title. Well, he's from Washington, so he's at home right now while GNCC is on a break, and he's at this works. Well, he pretty much goes head-to-head the whole time with the current works points champion, um, Gary Sutherland, and apparently it was down to the very last 
bit of turns in the enduro cross section where Gary Sutherland was able to make, keep, and and get the win. So make the pass, keep the pass, and then get the win. Um, and it sounds like there was some really, really good racing. Um, I don't know. Have you heard too much about the work series as of late throughout the past couple of years? Not myself, because I've been following pretty much the Supercross, Motocross. Okay. Of course, it, my Indy cars. Yeah. There's, there's been a little bit of a fallout in the following. They've done a, they tried to do a lot of different format changes. I mean, they really, they lost all support from any major factory teams, um, especially when KTM pulled out. So they've been kind of in, I wouldn't say a rebranding stage as of yet, but they've really been rethinking what is works and they've been trying new things and it, they've been bringing in new people the racing that looked like that happened again from video footage and from pictures that i saw looked like an amazing race went down and it was a works race that it looked like i wanted to attend um, and i can't say that about many works races that i've seen as of late um, so if you guys haven't seen any pictures the guy uh ben i don't know how to pronounce his last name uh uh ben uh surf and dirt surf and dirt i want to say it's Surfanddirt.com. Yes, he has his pictures up from uh, from the weekend, and they are super awesome. And I'm telling you, man, it's a race that it looks like you, a works race that you want to go race. So they so. may be coming back. Yeah, I would. I would think that would be pretty cool. Washington seems like a cool place. Ride in Montana was fantastic. Idaho was really cool. Just got to go another state west. Well, there's there's actually two Washingtons. You know, you've got the Cascade Range leading down towards Seattle and the Olympic Peninsula, but then you get into shadows in the in the east, and it's desert. From the mountains to Spokane, it's a desert just huh. about. So really, state of Washington is two different states. Yeah, that's a, our, our good buddy Brian Elliott. He's kind of from up in the Montana and Idaho area, and he, he says that there were places around Boise where he could go south and hit desert-type riverbed desert yeah. and then head north, and then he'd be... You know, in the stuff like we rode at the two-day ISDE qualifier, which was just wicked cool mountain single track, mm-hmm. you know, like Colorado-esque. Um, so it's really neat. That would just it seems like a really cool place, and one day it would be awesome if we could make it up there. You could bring your 990 and the 990 key, and uh, I'll bring whatever bike I'm on. I think I think it's going to be a 350. I I would recommend a 350. I think we're going to go with the 350. But the size of that four-stroke would just be magic. Yeah, I think it'd be fun. Well, it'll be fun. All right. So, episode 137. I think we covered some awesome stuff. Cody Baker, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, J-Day is a great series, and I do. Uh, Brooks, their, their KTM rep, right before the show was like, dude, figure it out. Get your way up here. We'll get you on a KTM to race. And I was like, you got it. Let's figure it out. We'll make it happen soon. I can tell you right now, the rest of 2014 is absolutely booked solid. I'm still fingers crossed I can make Iron Man GNCC this year. We will see. I'd love to do another KR4 Arrive and Ride adventure. But if you think you might want to do a KR4 Arrive and Ride adventure, you can check them out at kr4performance.com. Go to their Arrive and Ride um, section of the website and check it out. So hopefully we could be all be under the same banner, under the same tent. I'll be KR4'd out. You'll be KR4'd out. And we'll be like, moonshine. Right, Steven? <laughs> and I'll bring the water. And I'll help. I'll help. I'll help. I'm from Arkansas. I'll help. <laughs> and we got some great information from Alan Stillwell. Stillwell oh, perf- performance. Fantastic stuff. And, of course, we mentioned Flex Bars from the guys over at Fast Company. So fastco.com. And Fly Racing at flyracing.com. Giving away swag to the best question. Eric Miller, congratulations on your win. We will be reaching out to you to figure out sizes and all kinds of fun stuff. We're not telling you what you're going to win. It's just going to show up, and you're going to be like, oh. 
Oh, this is magic. It'll be a good time. I wonder if that desert rider has size 15 feet like mine. Because he can get boots from Fly if he does. Mm. Aren't many boot makers that make you 15? Your, yeah, you and your big old feet. <laughs> when you're 6'5", well, you've got to have big boots, sure, right? Because you're 6'5". Yeah. yeah. Um, so my daughter is literally staring at me in the window right now. So apparently it's time to get off. So what do you think? Episode 137, thank you guys very much for paying attention. This has been Seat Time, the online show for the off-road enthusiast. SeatTime.co is the website so you can see all of our archive shows as they have happened in the past. Highly recommend you going back and finding episode 1 through 10. Highly, highly 11. recommend. And episode 11, the one that my father was on, first time on Seat Time. <laughs> Everybody's got a first time. How was his? Go find out. So we're on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Seat Time is where you can find us there. We're on Twitter. It's Twitter.com slash Seat Time underscore CEO. We do enjoy tweets, so tweet us real hard. Instagram, if you're looking for fun pictures, we've got them. It's just Seat Time. Look for it. Remember, Stitcher or and or iTunes, you can subscribe to us. Search for Seat Time, two words. Or subscribe to us on YouTube, and you will get invites for live events like we're happening now or when we upload videos. <sighs> Thank you, everybody. This is Tuesday night in Texas, and we're going to go to sleep. It's a wrap. Peace.